Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter five. Um, if you haven't been with us for a while, or if, uh, if you're just joining us today for the first time, um, we, we just started Sermon on the Mount not that long ago. It begins with the Beatitudes. Uh, this is probably uh, the most well-known teachings of Jesus, um, both inside the church and outside the church. Uh, it's, it's perhaps the most misunderstood uh, as well. And as one theologian said, it's certainly the least followed. Uh, what Jesus is doing is he's redefining uh, our vision and understanding of what is true and real for citizens of his kingdom. He's helping us to imagine how one is to live in his kingdom, and he's inviting us to live in the ways of his kingdom. Uh, and his kingdom uh, is vastly different than the kingdom of this world. Right? It, uh, we call it the, the upside-down kingdom sometimes. That's what we've titled this sermon because uh, it, it's so different. It seems upside-down, and yet logically, if there's a kingdom that's upside-down, it is not God's kingdom. It's our kingdom that is upside-down and broken. And the question uh, that we posed last week as we went through the, the first four Beatitudes, and, and we uh, continue this question this week, is uh, as you read this, these Beatitudes, is this you? Does this describe you? Uh, the Beatitudes are not a list of, hey, if I do this and that and do this, then, then I get to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a list that describes the characteristics of God, the, uh, of God's people, their characteristics or qualities of all of Jesus' followers. So if, as you're reading these, and listening and, and, and coming to understand what Jesus is saying, and you ask yourself, is this me? And you realize that's not you. It doesn't describe you. Well, hopefully that stirs in you a question that is actually quite frightening. Do you know Jesus as Lord? Or are you one of those that he'll talk about later in the Sermon on the Mount? They'll say, Lord, Lord. And he says to me, away from me, I never knew you. I would wager that in every church, every local church, there are people that come each week that are in that category. Um, people that, that maybe they've been to church for decades, maybe their whole lives. They, they, they go to Bible studies. They know uh, theology, but they're practicing this righteousness of their own. It's this, it's this self-salvation rather than trusting in Jesus as Lord. And I certainly don't want that to be anyone in this church. So uh, we'll start actually at verse 1, even though today's sermon starts in verse 7. But I want us to get all the Beatitudes. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, and this is where we're starting today. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, our truth statement for today is, is the same as last week. It's just for the, all the Beatitudes. It's, uh, to the world, Jesus' followers appear unfortunate. However, Jesus declares they are fortunate, for their misfortune will be reversed when God's kingdom comes in full. Of, of course, the people that live in this upside-down kingdom will, will look like they're anything but blessed, anything but flourishing or fortunate or happy. Last week I mentioned that as you read the Beatitudes, almost every one of them is just a head-scratcher. And I imagine the, the disciples sitting at Jesus' feet, never having heard these and hearing, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and the humble. And then he gets to, blessed are those who are, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let's start with verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, mercy sounds great when you are the one receiving mercy. But when you're the one doling out mercy, you realize that there is a cost to, to giving mercy. If you're in a position to either give or withhold mercy, it means that you've been wronged. And it's probably a big deal. If someone needed to ask for forgiveness, they did something to you. We live in a world that when it behaves as its true self, it is merciless. And, and this feels more true right now in our culture than any time that I can remember. If someone says the wrong thing, they're canceled. If, if someone asks the wrong question, they can be ostracized. If someone thinks you think something wrong, you're out. Christians, the world does this. I wish that we could say we never behave like this. We shouldn't behave like this. Jesus tells us citizens of his kingdom are to be people that are full of mercy. And it should not shock us that God's people would be a merciful people when we see how great our God is in mercy. Think of Exodus 34, 6. God's, God's describing himself. He's explaining who he is, what he's like. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we could, we could go all throughout scripture and read about our God of mercy, which is incredible because his creation rebelled against him. But what does he do? Well, he sends his son. He sends his son to give up his life for them, not because they were good, not because we showed some potential, but as Paul tells us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the question for the Christ follower isn't, man, how, how can I find a way to be merciful? How can I dig deep and, and, and show mercy? No, in light of the cross, the question is, how can I not be merciful? When God has been so merciful to me, how can I not be merciful like my Lord? In Matthew 18, uh, Jesus is asked, I think by Peter, how many times, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Should I do it maybe seven times? I was like, no, 
70 times 7. And then he, he replies, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, and he tells this story of a king. And there's this servant that owed this debt that was enormous. I mean, this, this man could not pay this debt. Uh, so the king orders that all of his possessions would be sold to pay this debt. He orders that, that his wife and his kids are sold to pay this debt and that he'd be thrown into jail. And the servant begs the king. He, he begs him for mercy, begs for, for more time. And the king decides to mercifully forgive this debt. And then the servant goes out and he finds a, a fellow servant who owed him a debt, a, a much, much smaller debt. It didn't even compare actually to the debt that he had to the king. And he insists that the debt is to be paid. And, and he, he jumps on the servant and is choking him, ordering him to pay this debt. The other guy begs for more time. And this, this servant who has just forgiven his debt, he, he refuses. He has him thrown in jail. Well, word gets back to the king, and this is, what, this is what Jesus says in 1832. It says, Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? If we've received God's mercy... How can we not be merciful people? As John Stott puts it, he said, nothing moves us to forgive like the knowledge that we have been forgiven. Nothing proves more clearly that we have been forgiven than our own readiness to forgive. So are you a person of mercy? Do you forgive people? Or do you hold grudges against others? If you do, in light of God's mercy, how do you justify holding a grudge against someone else when your debt has been forgiven? And as I've been meditating on these beatitudes, the, the interconnectedness of them, just it just leaps off the page. If you're poor in spirit, you know that you've sinned against God. You know that your debt is too large for you to deal with. You mourn over your sin. And you're comforted and blown away that God would forgive you when you've done nothing to deserve it. And this is why you're meek and you're humble before God and before others. You see that it is only by God's grace that, that he's, he's given you this, this great mercy. That meekness not only changes how you are before God, but like I said before others, you know that you need to be, you needed to be forgiven you see your own faults. You see what you're capable of. And all of this leads to mercy. And Jesus tells them, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it comes as no surprise, if you've spent much time in the Bible at all, that our heart matters to God. Here's just a few places in Scripture that we read about the heart um, not too long ago, we were in both First and Second Samuel. First Samuel sixteen seven it says, uh, "The Lord says to Samuel as, as he's uh, searching for a king in in, uh, in David's family, and he sees these older brothers that look so great." And God says, "For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart." Matthew 12, 33, Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. 
for the, tr- uh, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 15, 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. God wants a pure heart. He wants... He wants a heart that is true and devoted to him. David writes phrases in the Psalms like teach me wisdom in my secret heart. He writes, create in me a clean heart, O God. David wouldn't have to ask for these if our hearts were just naturally inclined to God, to worship God, to treasure God. Our hearts are bent away from God. God said this through the prophet Isaiah about his people, Isaiah 29, 13. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. I wonder, is that you? Because I know at times that is certainly me. I say the, the right words that honor God, but so often my heart is far from God. I have a mouth that professes allegiance to God's kingdom, but a heart that is not there. Uh, I've got this side hustle going to build my own kingdom for the time being. And churches seem to attract or produce, I'm not sure, people who are often much more concerned with this appearance of godliness rather than actual godliness. Jesus came not because we needed to improve some. He came because our hearts are rotten and decaying. And he confronts the, the Pharisees on this. I'm sure you remember he talks about their, their external righteousness and he compares it to cleaning the outside of a cup and yet never cleaning the inside of a cup. It's just nasty inside. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we see this inner righteousness versus outer righteousness. The Beatitudes force us to look inwardly. Citizens of his kingdom, they, they have a heart that's pure. And I don't think, uh, or I do think inner righteousness is, is a part of what a pure heart is. I also think uh, Psalm 24 helps shed some light on, on what a pure heart is. In verse 3, uh, the psalmist asks, who can ascend the Lord's hill? Who, who can stand in his holy place? And verse 4 says this, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, James 4.8, I think, is helpful here, too. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. A pure heart towards God. It's not lifting up itself to, to anything but the Lord. It is not double-minded in its worship of God. No, it's, it's, it's got this single-mindedness. It's not divided. It's not mixed with anything else. We're familiar, probably, with Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is a heart that is pure towards God, that worships God alone, that's not mixed with other loyalties. We shouldn't be surprised that the blessing attached to this pure heart is one that will see God. Now we know, or I hope you know, that having a pure heart doesn't happen because you're really disciplined, because you dig deep, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It happens by God working in you and making you more and more like his son. It's his sanctifying work. 
and you see the difference, maybe not in a short period of time, but over a long period of time, if you've been following Jesus, you're able to look back and see how he's changed you. And you know that wasn't you that did those things. It was the Lord growing you, maturing you, shaping you as he wants you to look like the son, Jesus. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Right? Every Christian is to be a peacemaker, both in the world and in the church. And how good does peace sound right now? It, our world is so tumultuous right now. There's, there's so much division over so many things, so many that are so dumb and, and, and plenty that do matter. Right? Anti-maskers wasn't a term 10 or 12 months ago. If someone said that, you'd think of some weird Halloween thing. But now, like people are passionate one way or the other about masks and how great it would be if that was our biggest problem, but it's not. We lacked it. Our world lacks peace. We lacked it a year ago too. We lacked it 10 years ago, 20 years ago. We've, we've lacked it since sin entered the world. But our lack of peace just feels palatable right now. Making peace is certainly God's work. God is the reconciler. He's the author of peace. I love Colossians 1.20. It says, through him, through, through Jesus, uh, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Right? Jesus is the reconciler, and it's fitting that peacemakers will be called the children of God because it's through his son that God was making peace and reconciling the world to himself. And now God is using his children to make peace as ambassadors of his peacemaking son, Jesus. And peacemaking, again, sounds great, but we know that it comes with a great cost. And certainly we think of the cost that Jesus paid, that he gave up his life so that sinners could be reconciled. But I so often neglect to think about just him becoming flesh, him adding humanity to his deity, was him suffering every single day for more than 30 years. As Jesus followers, we realize that being instruments of peace in this world will cost us. And maybe none of us will give up our lives physically, but we certainly do lay down our lives as an offering to the Lord. So do you pursue peacemaking? Are we on the lookout to share the good news with others that they can have peace with God because Jesus came and died for them? In your relationships, do you, do you pursue peace? In your church, whether, whether you're here with us and you're from another church or, or whether this is your church, do you pursue peace in your church? You will get hurt in church. If you stay in any church long enough, you will get hurt. Right? If you're in this church long enough, I will do something that will hurt you. And I hate, to, I hate that that's the reality, but, but it's true. Like A bunch of sinners together, even though Jesus is sanctifying us, making us more and more like him, we will hurt each other. Hopefully unintentionally, but sometimes we'll do it on purpose. And it, it is a beautiful thing, though, when Christians reconcile. It's, it's incredible uh, to be forgiven by a, a brother or sister in Christ. There's someone in our church... Um, that was hurt by something uh, a little ways back that, that, that it happened and they wanted to meet and we got together and, and sure enough, yeah, I'm listening, I'm like, yeah, man, we hurt you, 
right? We, we offended you, right, in, in, a, in a real way. I mean, people are offended about all kinds of things, but uh, this person was, was truly hurt by something we had done and I asked him for forgiveness, and he forgave me. And, and, and in, in comparison to Christ's forgiveness, right, this, this forgiveness was such a small thing, but the whole afternoon, and actually probably for a couple of days, I was just marveling at Christ's forgiveness because this brother in Christ could, could show me just this little glimpse of what it means to be forgiven. It reminded me of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. So are we pursuing making peace? Obviously, the closer you are with someone, the more motivated you are to make peace with them, right? Like, I'm pretty motivated to be at peace with my wife, with my kids, with my closest friends. But what about someone who bugs you? Well, what about a brother in Christ? I just saw a husband touch his wife. That was pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> totally distracted me. What about someone who bugs you, whether it's your wife or not? <laughs> what about someone that, that really just isn't like you? That You, know, you could just, just sit on the opposite side of church every Sunday. Do you pursue peace with them? Because our God is a God of peace. Jesus pursued peace with us even when we were hostile to him. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a transition to go from peacemakers to persecution. Persecution is the reality for God's people. And as much as we strive to be at peace as Christians, as much as we should strive to be at peace with all people, the reality is the, the message of, of God through Jesus coming to reconcile the world to himself is offensive to the world. Right? Speaking about sin is offensive. Speaking about wrath and judgment, needing to be saved, this is good news for those who have ears to hear, for, for those who God's heart, God has opened up their heart to receive the gospel. But Paul says for those who are perishing, this is foolishness. It's offensive. In verse 11, which we'll get more into next week, but in verse 11, Jesus is uh, placing uh, great emphasis on persecution that Christians ought to expect, right? The, the words from the Beatitudes change from blessed are those who to here it says, blessed are you when, right? Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I mentioned there's all kinds of arguments about how many Beatitudes there are and does this one count or not. Uh, one commentator calls this, this Beatitude the, the plus one. But, but what Jesus is doing here is he, he wants us to see persecution is a part of being in his kingdom. Right? He's putting an emphasis on here that, that part of following Christ is that people will revile you. People will say terrible things about you. They'll, they'll call you names. They'll insult you. They'll gossip about you, right? And he says it like this. He says, when others, right? He assumes that this is going to happen. We assume, I assume, in my American Christian mindset, that this will not happen, 
in America, we really haven't um, experienced much persecution, certainly not like all other Christians throughout the history of Christianity. Though in, in our country in the last couple of decades, certainly the heat is turning up. Let me read from you some, some more verses about persecution. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. John 16, 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I remember, Jesus is redefining, he's re, uh, revisioning the world for citizens of his kingdom. Um, before I taught my kids to uh, learn how to ride a bike, uh, some, some other parent, I can't even remember who, uh, gave, me, gave me some wisdom. They said, hey, your kid's going to fall off their bike right, at some point. And they're going to want to never ride it again. You have to prepare them for that. So, so with each of our kids, as we've taught them to ride their bikes, and, and as they're getting to the point where like, I'm going to let go this time, right? we tell them, you're going to fall. It's going to hurt. You're going to get scraped up. It's going to feel like, like, like the worst thing ever. And we're going to calm down. And then before we leave, we're going to get back up on that bike. And you're going to ride it again. And Jesus, he's doing something like that here, right? He's got the other team's playbook. He knows what's coming, and he's getting his kingdom people ready. You'll, you'll be bullied. You may be canceled. You may lose a job or your business. You might be taken to court or slandered on social media or in your neighborhood. You will get left out. Your kids might come home crying because seemingly no one else sees the world the way you tell them it is from Scripture. But remember Jesus' words, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just like it started with blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The persecuted get the kingdom of heaven. So they're blessed. They're happy. They're fortunate. They're flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that, that doesn't seem right to us, especially when we face so little persecution. But Jesus, he's given us the plan. He's telling you, eventually you're going to fall off the bike. right? You're going to be persecuted at some point. It's going to hurt. It will be scary. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, rejoice. Be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. Christians, we look to the end. We look to what is coming. Some of these blessings we experience now, but we will experience all of them in full when his kingdom finally comes. The Christian willingly aligns with Jesus and his sufferings. We're to share in the suffering of Christ. There's no way around it as a disciple of his. And, and I fear 
most Christians in America that, that we hear Jesus' Jesus' plan, but we have our own plan. And our problem is our plan doesn't involve what Jesus very clearly says his followers will experience. Jesus' followers will be persecuted. Our plan is something like, I'm going to have a job that I like. And I'm, I'm going to buy a, a good-sized house. And I'm going to have, I'm going to have quality relationships. If you, if you want to get married, you'll be married. And if you want to have kids, you have kids. And those kids will, will not only love you, but they'll follow Jesus. And they'll bring their, the grandkids home to visit you. And, and you'll retire. And you'll do some traveling. But nowhere in the plan is that people mock us for believing in Jesus. Right? Our plan doesn't include being called terrible names because we believe that God's word is actually truth. Our plan doesn't include our kids going away to, to college or, or wherever and, and their faith being torn to shreds. Christians in our country, we've had it very easy. We, we faced minimal persecution, though that is certainly shifting in our culture, but I don't think we're ready. I, I think, I fear that, that I love this world too much, that we love this world, that we love comfort. And I, I wonder if, if it's our lack of persecution that, that tempts us to compromise in order to, to keep peace, right? We talk about peacemakers. Man, it's tempting to, to, to get this, this false peace, this, this cheap peace, Luke 6.26, the Sermon on the Plain, so very similar to Sermon on the Mount. Some people think it's the same, but listen to this. Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Man, we like being liked. I like being liked. There aren't many people at all that don't like me. Um, and that sounds like a weird, humble brag. I, I mean... That, that I'm so concerned with being liked that sometimes I don't say what is true. I used to be so passionate about telling people about Jesus. Now, I've told you this before. Man, in high school, after I got saved, I wanted to tell everyone about Christ. And I'm, I'm sure there were times where I forced Jesus into conversations that probably didn't make any sense. But man, I just wanted people to know what I had. And then over the years, I don't fully know what happened. But I see this verse, and I think that's a part of it, is that I want people to like me. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to be canceled or, or whatever in our, in our culture. Our world doesn't want truth right now. I thought truth was relative 20 years ago. Man, it's, it's even worse now. And we have truth. Right? We have God's word. If we don't speak truth, no one in the world will. It, it, Christians must speak truth. We need to speak where the Bible speaks. We need to speak gospel truth. We need to speak about what God God says, because it matters if he said it. I didn't even know this until a couple days ago that today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And this is one area that God's word's really, really clear, right? that, that, that all human life matters. He's the author of human life, that, that life in the mother's womb is what he's created, and, and that life must live. Christians need to be ready to speak about truth 
in issues like abortion, and there's tons of issues that we need to speak about, but this is one of them. In our culture right now, you're labeled anti-woman if you do that, even though logically 50% of those babies are women. Right? That is very pro-woman to me, but we need to speak the truth about what God, God's word tells us. Right? It's our kingdom that's upside down. It's not his. We've got to speak truth, and abortion is just one of, of many issues, but where the Bible speaks, Christians, we have to start speaking. We need to speak about Jesus. And you notice in verse 11, it says that evil is uttered falsely against you, uh, against the believer, on Jesus' account. We can't, we can't just take like the good ethical teaching out of the Sermon on the Mount, out of the Beatitudes, and, and try and try and remove Jesus or or lessen Jesus, believing that that if we do that, then we can do uh, more social good in our world. I, I just heard an interview a couple of days ago with John uh, Cooper. He's the lead singer for Skillet, this Christian rock band. I didn't listen to him, but I do know they're a big deal. Um, uh, they put out their first album in '96. Um, but they didn't have a hit, like a, a legitimate hit, until like 2010 or so, okay? So he's 35 at this point. Like most people that make it in, in the entertainment industry, 35 is kind of old. Um, you you got to be younger and look better and, and, and be cooler. Um, but, but this is when, this is when they kind of hit it big. And all of a sudden, they're, they're, they're on secular radio stations. They got invited to do this big tour, and they were the only Christian band. Um, they're the opening act, right? They're still a nobody. But, but uh, the tour company put on, uh, after one of the shows, they invited all the bands and everybody that's a part of the show to, to this bowling alley. And they're, they're just going to celebrate the tour together. And, um, and some guy says, John. And he turns around. And it's the, the agent like, of, of this, whole, this whole tour. And John couldn't even believe the guy knew who he was. Um, and he said, hey, John, i, I got to tell you, you guys, you guys have the potential to be the next big band in the world. I'm not kidding you. you. You guys have the look. You have the sound. You guys have this spirituality thing that, that like other bands are trying to fake, but you guys actually have it. And he said, but I, I got to shoot straight with you. You need to stop talking about Jesus so much. You need to stop doing Christian interviews, stop doing Christian tours, stop doing Christian music festivals, right? And, and, and if you cut Jesus out, man... I think you are going to take off as a band. And, and John, in some ways, was, was shocked that he actually came out and said it. But it was actually what he said next that was more surprising. And I think it's applicable to all Christians navigating this culture right now. He said to him, John, you could get your message out to more people if you stopped talking about Jesus and just talked about the social aspect of Christianity. He said, look at Bono. People love Bono, right? Talk about the poor. Talk about the oppressed. Feed people in Africa. Talk about goodness and light, all of those things. Think about how much good you could do, John, if, if your band took off and, and you got rich. Think about all, all the good you could do if you were rich and famous. And John said there was a, a part of him in that moment, and, and the moments following that, that, that he wondered, like, was it true what he said? Like, was there truth in what he was saying? He, he knew it, it didn't sound right. And he said, if not for being in God's word, he, he might have bought that lie. So he went back to his tour bus that night and he, he prayed and went to sleep and he, he woke up the next morning just so mad that the devil can, can package something so that, so that it sounds true. 
Christians have to quit hoping that that people are going to notice that we're different and ask us to tell them about Jesus. We can be super nice. We can be ethical. We can be servants. We, We can make the world look better, but the world has to hear that they need Jesus. Otherwise, none of it matters. They have to know that the judgment's real, but that the Savior has come. Jonathan uh, Pennington uh, wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and and he quotes uh, Eugene Peterson to wrap up the Beatitudes section. And and this this quote isn't just about the Beatitudes. it's, It's about the story of Scripture, but I think it's really helpful. Eugene Peterson said, Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling, invite us. Live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, love you, Lord, and uh, God, I I confess, um, I just confess that that sometimes I love this world so much, and sometimes, um, a lot of time, maybe most of the time, Lord, I I care so much about what people think of me um, in the church and outside the church. God, would, would we care about what people think about you? Lord, would we be ready to possibly greatly offend people in the hope that maybe, maybe they would respond to you, Jesus. Maybe, maybe you'd open their eyes so that they can see the good news, Lord, that they can be saved from sin. Lord, we want to be a people that, that, that have pure hearts, that, that really are single-minded in our devotion to you, Lord. God, we need you to do this in us. We We are completely incapable, Lord. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.